once again, as always, to the Kill Your Gods podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dran. This is the podcast where we discuss all... You know what? We actually need to have a conversation about that. (laughs) I, uh, as you know, this podcast started as I Hate Infinite Jest, with the entire premise being... Infinite Jest is a book that people love. I don't understand what anybody likes about it. I don't like it. So, I am going to read through the book. I'm going to bring on fans. They're going to explain to me what I'm missing. At best, I came to a begrudging acceptance. There's a lot about that book I liked. But after we finished that, I had the problem of, well, where do we go from here? Now, as somebody... I don't want to say I'm a contrarian. But uh, I like... I like arguing, generally. I also like being critical of certain things in culture and art. So I just had like, let's just do stuff where we talk about things and we pick apart fandoms that I don't understand. And let's see if we can figure it out. And we had some good episodes in there. But I got to be honest, I have noticed that uh, some of the numbers have been dropping recently. And maybe I've expanded the scope of this podcast a little bit too much so we're gonna pull back we're gonna go back to uh what got this thing going we're gonna go back to books and we're gonna be you know we're gonna stick to this a little bit our our different episodes are gonna be you know maybe fewer and farther between i know you guys have liked a lot of the episodes they'll still pop up the game of thrones series is still gonna pop up because me and perry have been recording them and frankly they're fun and they're good for our relationship not to mention, I am getting married in a month, and uh, I'm not really going to be thinking about the podcast, so I'm going to be just throwing stuff up there in the meantime, just just for a week or two. But yeah, we're going to pull this back. We're going to start doing books again. I, I, I've heard you guys loud and clear, more books, maybe some less other stuff. I'd like to do some more music episodes. I have, oh God, uh, comedian Drew Montana, a, a friend of mine really doesn't like the Beatles and I just want to shame him on the podcast airwaves. So we'll probably, I don't see a way that doesn't happen. I need to have Drew Montana on here. I also need to have an anime episode part two because I, I upset many, many people and I promised them they could come on. That was fun though. Also, I didn't, I felt like I didn't give anime enough of a chance. So I need to do much more research than I originally did. But for now, We're going to go back to books for a little bit. Starting next week, we will begin reading Kafka on the Shore by Murakami. My first Murakami. I don't know if I'm going to call it I Hate Murakami, because that would be inaccurate, but I'll I'll call it something. I might experiment a little bit. I've been doing that with some here and there. We'll definitely be continuing to do the Bible, because that was fun. I think I want to keep having Neil on for that. I might bring some other people. But this week... We're doing a different kind of book club. Um, This is a book I read I never intended to do a podcast of. My uncle Rick had recommended it to me. That, of course, would be George R. Stewart's seminal 1949 post-apocalyptic novel, Earth Abides. I loved this book so hard. But, as you know, the reason I started this podcast, my friends don't really read They say it's hard for them to retain information, but it's because they all watch children's cartoons for enlightenment. (laughs) I love them, though. But yeah, I really wanted to find somebody to talk about this book to. Strangely, not a big 
following online. People like it, but it doesn't have like a community around it. So I found someone. I found a new friend from Australia. His name is Jordy. His name is Jordy Guy, I think. That's what his Zoom thing said. You can find him on Twitter at Gordy, please, P-L-S, G-O-R-D-Y-P-L-S. I had a great time talking with Jordy, who I otherwise would have never, ever met. I recorded it late at night just so I could have a conversation with a man from Australia that I have never spoken to before. But he had a lot of great insight. He's a big-time book lover. Much like me, he wanted to talk about this book with somebody. And honestly, if it was anyone, I'm glad it was him because I had a great time talking to him. So again, follow him on Twitter at GordyPLS, G-O-R-D-Y-P-L-S. Follow me at Jesse Dram. At Mr. Jezico on YouTube, where I'm putting up more videos. The anime one didn't go up because I had clips of Dragon Ball and shit in there. And they also take their children's cartoons seriously. Send hate mail and future ideas to at uh, jessedram at gmail.com. Yeah, some books we have coming in the future. Obviously, Earth Abides, this one. Kafka on the Shore. We will be reading Dune. I know y'all are very excited for that. I, when I was doing Infinite Jest, a lot of people said, do, do next. Uh, we're going to dip into the Harry Potters. We're going to keep going through the Bible. I am not done with you, King James. That's enough of my blathering, guys. Before, yeah, enough said. Go read Earth Abides and listen to this podcast. It's such a good book. I love it so much. Okay, here we are. We are on the Kill Your Gods podcast, a very special episode. You guys know that I've done a few books on here. We've typically done that in pieces. This book, I had no intention on doing a podcast about, but I loved it so much. And there's actually not, I couldn't find any of the podcasts that were really talking about it. We are talking 1949 by George R. Stort, Earth Abides. And my guest this week I, I found him online. He was uh, talking about the book very recently. I said, hey, you want to come on? And he said, sure. Jordy Guy. How you doing, Jordy? Good, mate. Yourself? How are you? Very good. Very good. We're recording this on extreme time delay. It is 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And where is it where you are? Uh, it's just ticked over midday in, uh, in Sydney, Australia. There it is, Sydney, Australia. It's actually very unique. I mentioned that uh, the company I work for, our parent company who bought us is right in Sydney. So I've actually, just, I had to be looking at a, but they asked me to write something about their headquarters. So I was like looking like uh, at Botany Bay. It, uh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, well, let's find out a little bit about you. Um, I don't know if there's anything you have to promote. You can tell us where we find you on social media. Um, I don't really have anything to promote. Uh, I'm a nerd that lives in Australia. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's that's kind of me. I work for one of the big telcos over here, so kind of like the Australian version of AT and T or Sprint, if you like. So, yeah. if you think about the sort of person who does that and loves to you know, cook mm -hmm. and read and play with computers, you've pretty much got me in a nutshell. I was actually kind of you, you referred to yourself as a nerd there, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there anything? specific to uh I, I it's only been like the last 10 15 years or so where i feel like nerd culture has become its own thing is there any specific flavor to like the australian side of that i, I don't think there's anything particularly australian about it mm -hmm. um but yeah i absolutely agree that it's it's sort of picked up in the last 10 15 years as the 
the uh, the stuff we got beat up for in high school is mm. now gives you a, a good paying job, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the tide has turned a bit there. Hey, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel bad. The episode I just released today was um, just really like dunking on anime. Which uh, I, 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 I understand if people like anime, it's just I have my own thing. I'm into nerdy things as well. That's actually pretty much the whole gist of the podcast. Uh, Kill Your Gods came from I was arguing with somebody about wrestling, which I, I love wrestling, but it is objectively pretty dumb as an art form. So I just, you know, absolutely. I, it's OK to like pretty dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I, I kind of, like, I'm not an anime guy because that's very, very different to liking anime, right? Being an yeah. anime guy. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, I like, I occasionally watch some of the old uh, Studio Ghibli stuff that, mm. like, the, the really classic, because the animation's really cool and, you know, it's, but no, I, beyond that, I've got, as a joke there, I've got a Zoom background um, that I put on <laughs> occasionally when I want to freak people out. And there's, that is... Yeah, there is nothing more disturbing than that. You got you got your waifu back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's yeah. It's mm. it's a, a little bit creepy. No, no, thank you. <laughs> nah, it's it, for me. It's just I, I think a lot of the problem I have is really a lot of my friends. Really, the truth is, most of my friends are into stuff like that, but none of them really read at all. And that's why it kind of bothers me because this thing that I'm into, if anything, kind of isolates me where I would want these people. I, I think my next thing is I'm going to be challenging these people who only read an- manga, who only watch anime and just like, you're going to read Dostoevsky with me and you will be a better <laughs> person for it. You might not like me anymore after, but you'll be a better person for it. There's like a culture injection there. Exactly. Yes. Have a little bit of everything, you know, not just fast food. But uh, so what is your, your literary background? How, are you a big time reader? How did you even wander into Earth Abides? Um, I really like the entire genre of sort of speculative fiction. And a lot of the mm-hmm. time that looks like sci-fi. Um, and that sort of goes with the nerd side of things. But a lot of the time it doesn't. Right. So the favorite premise of a book for me is what if everything was totally different? Mm-hmm. Um, and this fits, this fits really well into that slot. Um, I particularly enjoyed reading The Man in the High Castle. If you're familiar with that in the Amazon spin-off series, it's you know, what would have happened if we actually lost World War II and the victors there were you know, Germany and, and Italy and Japan. So those taking of a something that's just a given, right, that mm-hmm. the Allies won World War II, uh, that there are lots of people in the world who aren't dead of a virus in the case of Earth Abides and just tipping it on its head and, you almost get to play play with reality a little bit. So we know the way that the world is. What if it was just not that way at all? So I, I really love books like this. And I've got friends that have been at me to read this for a while. Um, and I, in a lot of ways for me, reading is when I'm kind of nerded out, mm-hmm. when I've had too much computers, when I've been writing too many apps, when I've just sort of been doing that stuff, mm-hmm. just getting there with a book, it's, it's realer. I, I understand that there's like a definite need to uh, have like a quick shift from like right brain to left brain. Like mm. I, you need to let the technical side just like lay down and have a nap. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Otherwise I just crash out myself. Right. I'll wind up stretched out on the couch mm. thousand yard stare just because I've tried to put too much numbers in my head. Yeah. Could definitely burn you out. See, 
you know what's funny? I haven't done it so much in uh, fiction, speculative fiction, as you put it. However, I am a fan of like alternate history. Um, mm. There are, which I think Man in the High Castle would definitely qualify as. Where, you know, whereas something like Earth Abides is obviously something that could happen versus something that has happened and tweaking a few things. But I think that also just comes naturally if you're interested in history in the first place. And like you hear things like about how uh, Archduke Ferdinand got killed in World War One and realize like, oh, like that almost sounds like an alternate history in and of itself because it was so unlikely how it happened yeah. that literally if one of these tumblers had not fallen into place, it doesn't happen. And it, it very nearly didn't happen a bunch of times. There's a mm -hmm. um, podcast I listen to from time to time called Hardcore History, but it is Love it. it is is very hardcore. Mm -hmm. um, incidentally, it's the worst podcast to listen to when you go for a jog, because um, I wound up running jogging like five extra miles just because <laughs> I was engrossed in it. But he has a, a well, not not only that, but for any for anybody listening who doesn't know Hardcore History, they tend to drop two to three episodes a year, and they're like five hours long. So yeah you'll get a hell of a jog out of that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, but yeah, all the stuff that had to happen and like he, he failed the first time and managed to serendipitously get a second crack at it. Like it, it does really feel like that sliding doors moment where everything could have been completely different if, if it was only slightly different. Oh yeah. No, th th there was an assassination attempt earlier in the day. The people scattered uh, the Archduke insisted on going to the hospital to see the wounded. They turned down a wrong way and had to do not only a K-turn, but like a 1913 K-turn. You can imagine what the transmission on a car is back then. And one of the assassins it was having like a sad, man, I failed to kill that royal sandwich in a cafe. And then he turns and he sees the guy basically stuck in between cars and runs out yeah. and blasts him and blasts his wife and... Long story short, yeah. millions, millions of people died. Hitler rose to power, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It all went downhill from there. Okay, so um, all right, let's dive into it. Um, I'm gonna jump around a little bit here, but the way I tend to do these is we'll just do a quick run through of the plot, and anytime there's something interesting, we can just stop and talk about it. So feel free to interrupt whenever. Yeah, sure. All right, we meet Isherwood, hence known as Ish. Uh, he gets bit by a rattlesnake after grabbing a hammer while uh, mountain climbing or so something like that. He's out in nature. He awakes much, much later after the great catastrophe. So immediately, it is so hard to read this in modern pop culture because I don't know if his was the first to really use this, but it's been repeated ad finitum of the person who is just gone and wakes up in a completely devastated world. I think immediately of Walking Dead. I think of 28 Days Later. Yeah, uh, Day of the Triffids sort of popped into oh. my mind there. Um, you know, when a what is it? A, a day that you know to be Wednesday starts out sounding like a Sunday. Like, so he's, he's sort of come to in hospital. Mm. And in that book, the protagonist is blinded. Um, so some disaster has happened that means he's, sort of missed the start of something mm. huge mm -hmm. yeah we have that here i'm actually i i find it interesting because really it kind of uh because it's been used so much in like horror again going into this book not really knowing much about it just knowing it was post-apocalyptic and the people who have used the trope so many times i kept waiting for some kind of monster to show up at least at first yeah yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I expect at the start of the book, like some some people sort of come by and he tries to get them to help him and they run off. And I'm like, ah, mm. oh, there's something out there that they're they're fleeing from, right? I know and that's correct. There is. Mm. Right. Um, but not what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. But well, not only that, but even if you take out the supernatural, like uh like I think the show The Walking Dead could on a, a lot of it would remain the same if you remove the entire zombie aspect of it. But also from movies and art like that, you immediately think like, oh, well, everybody's going to be at war with each other the whole time and it's going to be this big mm -hmm. violent. And this is actually a pretty chill post-apocalypse. Everyone's just trying to like keep away from each other. Um, you know, I, I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's no, no, no. It's, it, it does seem... Like from the start of the book, everything's pretty chill. And I thought about maybe why that might be. I think it's maybe because it was so big. Like if you look, mm -hmm. if you think about things like 28 Days and all the rest of it, there's still heaps of people left over in mm -hmm. some state or another. Um, so there's more drama, but this, this is a bit bit more thinky. Right, yeah. This has definitely been just a mas massive calamity where like, I, I think it would be safe to say probably like, 95% of people were killed, if not more. I don't remember if there's a number mentioned in here at all, but... No, it, it doesn't, but there's not many people left. Yeah, like like, it, like literally every almost every person we meet in this has had every single person in their life also die. Yeah. That have been mass amounts. Um, so he returns home to Berkeley. Uh, there are some survivors, but they're not doing well. One is a drunkard who just drinks himself into stupefaction, who ish more or less like, oh, I'll come back to you later. And then he's just dead when he finds him. Uh, his first good spot of luck, he is joined by Princess the Dog, who we'll see a lot of. I, I loved Princess. Um, <laughs> so with nothing else to do, he just travels around the country. And again, this is a very... I have, I have been trained to look at this sort of thing differently because it's almost always like, okay, I got to... It seems like the the beats in the stories that have come since have always been like, I need to find a group of people nearby and then we need to build a stronghold. Meanwhile, we're like 30 pages into this and he's like, I'll just drive to New York. Yeah, that was, as a, as not an American, that was a weird one for me, right? Because I've got some extended family in the US. I've been there a few times, but mm. a lot of these places, like I'm sort of pulling up Google Maps trying to figure out where they are. I'm like, that's mm. a long drive. And as an Australian, driving from one side of the country to the other is extremely dangerous, right? Yes. So there's, there's, there's like huge deserts in the middle there. It's like you know, four days without seeing any petrol stations. So it, it, it is a very common trope in the US right now to just, in any kind of humor, being like, no, Australia, everything in Australia wants to kill you. All the wildlife is built for murder. You do not belong yeah. there. Stay on the coast. Yeah. And it's, it's, we're only kind of joking, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Like it, it is dangerous, and if and this sort of comes through in this book as well. Um, if something goes wrong, you've got no help, right? Um, and in modern Australia, that's just because it's huge. Uh, but in this book, there is no help because everyone's dead. Um, mm -hmm. and infrastructures in like various states of disarray, gas pumps might work, might not work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so think it was a weird uh, one. Mm -hmm. Well, see, I think that's not even necessarily just Australia, even though you guys have more of the danger aspect of going straight through the entire country. But I've even heard friends who have like gone to visit the UK or whatever and have like suggested to friends there like, oh, let's rent a car and drive up to Scotland. Everyone looks at them like, "Are why would we do that? That sounds horrible. Why would you do that? 
But I feel in the U.S., it's number one, it's very much a car culture. And number two, our our train lines are just kind of horrible. Like they're really expensive where they still are. So it is it's almost easier to just do the drive. Like I've gone cross country. I think most people I know have gone cross country at one point or another. Hmm. Yeah. So whereas we're got a bit we're a car focused country as well but it's it's not the way that it is in the US we have public transport we have good rail systems in the major at least in the major cities and between mm-hmm. the major cities as well um so this idea of him just jumping into the car and go oh i'm just going to go to the other side of the country via you know the top and the bottom of it um to the point where he even sort of works out a way of getting a motorbike into the back of the car that he uses <laughs> uh yeah that's a lifeboat except for a car version of it oh yeah yeah pretty much anything that happens at any point plus i also think i i can understand some of the notion of why a survivor would do that in the u.s if just that our our climate and the geography of an area changes in the different regions of the u.s the the geography changes like dramatically so you don't know if one place is going to be more suited towards survivors than another yeah so and again i don't want to spend the whole time contrasting australia but Mm -hmm. australia is doesn't have that i guess breadth of different climates right but the broadly speaking the top half of it's really hot and bottom half of it's fairly cold but not so cold that you get two feet of snow um so it snows on top of mountains and stuff so Mm -hmm. it it was kind of it was almost uh fun for me to kind of go on the journey with him where it goes to Mm -hmm. different places um it talks a little bit in the book about how things might have changed infrastructure might have broken down quicker in places that had higher humidity and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um so i got to find out a little bit about these places it was kind of cool It's a, it's a neat you you got a little you got a little bonus out of it yeah <laughs> i missed out on yeah. um yeah there was there was a few um yeah it's quite interesting because a lot of from outside of the u.s a lot of the media we consume the art we consume that's u.s centric um you'd be forgiven for thinking the entire u.s was manhattan and so, uh, south california right? right um so going through these places like Georgia and things like that, which aren't really, really common in the media we consume. So it gave me a bit of an eye opener. Mm, okay. Okay, cool. Um, oh, okay. So want to get it out of the way now, because it does come up when uh, people talk about this book. There's a particularly problematic little section here where as he's traveling around the country, Ish meets some people, including a Southern black family that some people talk about. It's a black man and a pregnant woman. And I believe a little girl. I actually don't recall whether it was a boy or a girl, but uh, they very much. Yeah, yeah, it's a kid, but they don't look him in the eye. They don't really give him straight answers. They seem confused what to do. And Ish even has a little bit of like a bad thought of like, oh, I could just stay here and like be their ruler and be their king, you know, and a lot. A lot of people jump on that, but at the same time, we see so much later in the book that that uh, Ish is kind of prone to thinking non-productive thoughts of getting a little carried away, yeah. which is it, uh, so. That's how I uh, maybe I'm apologizing for Ish, but he's very he's shown his flawed all throughout the book. Yeah, he is. Um, I don't, I, it's really cool that you're saying that because I I had a couple of negative opinions on him. He had laws um there is that scene where he meets up with uh, the black family uh later in the book when it's sort of put together a bit of a colony i guess mm-hmm. um or an outpost uh one of 
one of the first children and sort of gets into adulthood a little bit later when the book jumps forward in time is referred to as simple. And we get the idea that um, she is uh, disabled in some way mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of his, his uh, thoughts about um, other people, uh, they're, they're pretty negative and they're very they're dismissive. Yeah. 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 Um, and his relationship with his kids later in the book, where he's got one clear favorite who's um, he sees as being more intelligent, whereas the others are perhaps more athletic and strong. Um, some of those scenes were pretty confronting. It's an interesting story. And, but the guy is occasionally a bit of a dick. Yes. Yes. And uh, <laughs> particularly for the racial aspect here, I think there's also something that people need to keep in mind is that this book was published in 1949. So, I mean, in a case like that, if you could imagine being in like the Jim Crow South and being an oppressed person and suddenly, you know, you're you're not just, everybody, we're dealing with the loss of humanity, but you're also dealing with the loss of your specific community, the good and bad. So if your entire community was, you know, don't make eye contact with the white people because God knows what will happen. And then a new one wanders in, like they're not, it, it, Nothing of this really struck me as uh, like, oh, they're they're being deferential to him. Like, no, that, that's the only word, world they know. And even in this, isn't that sad in this post-apocalypse that they still have that with them for the one white person they've seen in months? Yeah, yeah, that was, I mean, Australia has a similar sort of, well, it's a, a bad history um, with, yeah, our, with our indigenous, our First Nations people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene just translated so easily that there would be people who were like, well, this is, this is what it's like. Uh, white people are dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. And potentially there's more danger here because while those people historically haven't been able to lean on things like the authorities, the justice system to their favour, there is none now. So whatever this guy wants to do, he can do. And he does flirt with the idea of of all the things to, uh, to bring back into the post-apocalyptic world. He toys with slavery as an idea, but thankfully thinks better of it. Right. So... Uh, so from there, Ish returns to California and there he, uh, him and princess are driving around and princess just randomly runs into a house and there we meet, uh, M. So M is roughly 10 years older than him. We find out that she has had, uh, children who have perished in the great catastrophe. Um, it's hinted they, they very subtly mention that she she is of some kind of mixed race. I believe she's some kind of like black Native American kind of thing. I'm not yeah, sure. there was I, I remember where this is revealed, and like she gets upset about it later because she's whatever it is, she's able to hide it, or it's it's not mm. immediately obvious. And she talks about her uh, the moons on her fingernails being blue. And I didn't get that reference. I had a bit of a Google around trying to figure out what that meant, but I got the overarching idea that she felt like she perhaps misled him about her background. Mm-hmm. Wait, what was the moons on the fingernails? Because that I actually did not know. So in, when she actually, uh, when she reveals this, or she, does, she doesn't really reveal it. She doesn't come out and say, my background is this. But she gets upset um, and he basically implies that he did know or it had occurred to him. And he mentions something, she mentions about the, like the moons on her fingernails, like where the fingernail actually gets to the finger is blue and whatever Mm. she's letting out about her background, that's apparently a sign of it, but I I didn't really get it. Okay. Okay. Now I think, I don't know. There might be some racial difference in how fingernails look. I'm trying to not pull that memory from my head. Uh, (laughs) 
So they they pretty quickly have sex and fall for each other. And again, this is another interesting thing in these apocalypse narratives is they tend to pretty strictly go like one way or the other where uh, either sexual opportunism, again, I immediately think of 28 days later because as soon as they find two young women, it's like, okay, well, they're going to be sex slaves for the soldiers or other yeah. shows where it's just complete sexual apathy, where it's just, I'm too busy trying to survive. That's it. Yeah, yeah, they, they very definitely do tend to go both ways. And this this book's really interesting with the way it treats sexual morality. Like later in the book, we've they talk about people getting getting effectively married, um, mm-hmm. partnered's probably a better term. Um, but it is revealed that sort of 16, 17 appears, it's happening earlier than is legal in most places in the mm-hmm. real modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they, they do seem to build up a little bit of a a law like l-o-r-e law around it um but yeah it, it they do seem to go one way or the other everyone's um everyone's either appealing to their baser instincts or it's just sort of everyone's too busy trying to find food and water um all right i'll do this a little bit and then we can actually go through the characters uh so more people join in the community they all begin having many children and I think that's kind of where the first break happens. And that's where we have uh, the quick years. Yeah, but- so it's a weird one. Where twice in the book, it sort of does this literary uh, trick or it goes, anyway, sometime later. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which I really like because in a situation like this, you know, it's we had the chaos and then there were some stable years. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's that's really uh, set up with this sort of tradition of carving the year into the, the year number into a rock um, mm-hmm. and naming it. You sort of, and it's a, a breath of fresh air because I've read plenty of these books where you kind of tell that the author wants to skip forward in time a bit, but feels almost compelled to make up filler content for what happened because it's necessary for people to have aged, matured, learnt things to get to the next bit they want to talk about. So while I kind of mentally had that spongebob screen where it goes you know later that day um i, I kind of appreciated it you know, you don't need to drag me through the quiet years you can just jump it's cool exactly especially when i think one of the the huge appeals of this book is the fact that it essentially the the timeline is is a lifetime like we we meet ish in his 20s and then it yeah. is the duration of his life like if you tried to fill yeah. in every detail and make it all exciting it would be overkill yeah, 100%. There's sort of towards the end of the book as he, as he gets older um, and that starts to mean stuff to him. He starts to think a lot about what sort of society he's leaving behind and how it's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it would take, it would be a, a nine book series of a pretty boring one at that if we, we tried to yeah. spell out each day. <laughs> so I, I wanted to go through some of my uh, favorite names of the years that we have here. Uh, yeah. some, some are basic year three was year of the fires. I'm having to read this right out of the book. Cause again, infuriatingly, there's just like no real fan community of this book online that like just has it all listed out. Like you would hope. Yeah. It, it, it's weird. Um, I kind of expected there to be a, a wiki or about it, you know, these sort of fan driven wikis about every mm-hmm. available topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't, it was a bit of a surprise to me because I've talked about the book a lot to a lot of people and it came really heavily recommended. So there is fans out there somewhere. Yeah. It's, there's no great, I think part of the other aspect is I, it does seem like 
a lot of these major fandoms, when they come up, it's not just around the books. They tend to kind of lionize the author themselves. And as far as I can tell, looking around, it doesn't say, I can't find anything George R. Stewart saying like, this is why I wrote this book. This is what I thought was interesting about it. This is, this was the process. Like there's none of that. He just woke up one day and wrote this book. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of expected him to, I don't know, have been some sort of, uh, frontierman or something that he he obviously has a a lot of knowledge about um about the u.s in general climates and things like that that i talked about enjoying before so i I kind of he obviously has an understanding of the country um and he has some understanding of of survival techniques and things like that i kind of expected there to be more of a backstory than i've been able to find yeah we've been spoiled by the postmodern author who like poor i've been reading so much vonnegut lately and the man's opinions on everything are, dr- he will put the motivation for the book right in the book for no, just because he feels it. And here we <laughs> yeah. just have a dearth. Um, we have year five, which was year of the bulls because bull dodging became a fun game and pastime. I also love just how monotonous and dumb a lot of the reasons for them are like, oh mm. yeah, bull dodging was big that year. Um. <laughs> Year the the bad year that had uh, mad cow disease and grasshoppers, year of the lions when they started coming in. So that actually leads to a cool aspect of the book, which is a lot of uh, the ecology. Is they straight up state like in the quick years? Actually, that's a big notion of the quick years because that's where we get to see this happen. How these populations will just like soar and plummet as things go and like for a few years like there's just ants like crazy and then they just balance themselves out and then the same with the cows and then the same with the lions and rats Uh, rats yes yeah um yeah that's i found that really interesting as well because where what i said at the start about how i I really like the what if you you're really doing a a what if experiment if you just take humans out what happens well Hmm. obviously there's winners and losers in that um so the book has got several places where there's just a, a plague of something. Um, and it gets to the point where there's so much of that thing, it consumes all the available resources uh, and dies back back down again. Right. And, it, um, and it also forces the humans to like recalibrate how they're living, depending on yeah. that. Yeah. Um, the, the rats was particularly harrowing for me. I'm sort of... <laughs> Uh, you know, the dog gets attacked by them and they turn to cannibalism. And I found myself down the, the rats, I should point out, not the, the protagonists. Right. Um, uh, I wound up sort of down a Wikipedia hole chasing it, whether that would actually happen. It's one of those books that I, 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 a lot of the times with these types of books, I put them down and go research something. But I read this, I consumed this book so quickly because I enjoyed it so much. It was like over in the space of 24 hours. Oh, wow. Um, that I had to sort of turn around afterwards and, sort of google some of those ecological <laughs> wars that were happening mm-hmm. um okay so i think in the quick years this is actually a good time to get into the main characters since this is where they all uh, kind of arrive so we obviously have ish we have princess we have m also in here we have oh god sorry i was not as good with my notes as i thought uh i know we have ezra Ezra shows up with, uh, so yeah, he initially shows up all on his own, but M and Ish are pretty much straight up like, listen, we like you. He has like a nice English accent, but they like, you know, we like you. 
there's not enough of us here. This will be like a love triangle. You need to go, go find people and come back. And in those years, he actually does exactly that. And good old Ezra, who is told immediately many times what a good uh, person he is with people, he comes back. Wait, is, is X. wait, does Ezra come back with the two wives or is that George? Yeah, no, Ezra, Ezra comes back with a sort of, it's inferred that he should go off and find a wife and he comes back with several. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just got some notes here. Molly and Jean um, mm. are both, both his, uh, he, he refers to both of them as his wife and mm-hmm. one of them's got a son too. Right. Um, and when we find out uh, later, we'll find out later in the book that he will like spend one week at one of their houses and then another week at another one of their houses. Yeah, yeah, it kind of reminded me there's um, a, a fairly small these days um, section of the uh, Mormon religion. Um, and there was a, a, a fictitious TV show uh, called Big Love that sort of showed uh, one of these polygamous uh, marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminded me of that. The sort of, she nonchalantly, I think, Ish asks her where, asks one of the women where Ezra is. He's like, oh, this is, you know, the other wife's week. So he'll be at her mm-hmm. house. And there's no shortage of houses, so the logistics <laughs> at least works. Um, I don't know how the how the rest of it works, but it seems to go okay in the book. Yeah, um, they, they when I, when that first came in, I thought like, oh, okay, so Ezra's going to be a bad guy. He's going to try to take other people's wives, but nah, it seems to work just fine for him. Like, there's nothing about him really being a jerk at any point or any kind of overarching like sexual philosophy that's being cr- I as soon as that happened I was a little worried because when I think of sci-fi I always remember uh Stranger in a Strange Land where Heinlein all of a sudden like pumped in all like the the free sex thing into that plot yeah yeah no I I sort of I was surprised that that didn't go where I was I cynically thought it was going to go as well it, it just seems to it says just added calmly after he introduces each of them this is my wife mm-hmm. um and it just, it seems to work for them. Yeah. And um, it, would, it would also be acceptable in a situation like this where they're pretty adamant, like we need to repopulate. Yeah. It, it doesn't go into, like, it doesn't explicitly call out that that's why he's doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I almost think he's maybe, all the three of them maybe are leaning on the idea that there are no norms anymore. So mm-hmm. so if that's what they need to do, um, there are, there's two children, uh, that are already there it's sort of the book points out that they were from before the disaster um so family is necessary and you know that's a family yeah um so in addition to ezra who is mainly good with words there there's going to be the three men in this community and they're presented three ways where ish is kind of the leader bit of an intellectual like the far planner ezra is more the social one he's good at helping people get along and George, who is described as just like a very simple man, but like incredibly good with his hands. Yeah. Which yeah, he's obviously the carpenter and the plumber and all the rest of it. Yeah. Which in a post-apocalypse, you definitely can. Which, it, by the way, before we get too far, there's only two things about the longevity of this book that just bother me that I called bullshit on. Number one is the damn canned food lasting forever. Yeah. Yeah. Little, little yeah, bit I, of a little bit of a blip. Yeah, it, it's it's a, a literary device of a, a source of food that never runs out. Like canned food does go bad, jug food does go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we invented refrigeration for a reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it kind of seemed, I, I kind of expected them to maybe have to fight for food a little more. Yeah, I thought um, that was going to be a problem. They, they, they do the thing with the water at one point where like, oh, we don't have a steady water supply anymore. Now we have to, and that just never really happens with the food. Yeah, and it, it goes into a lot of detail later in the book where many, many years have passed, like trying to get a, a car up and running again when the rubber's degraded on the tires. Um, and it goes into like quite a bit of detail about how difficult it is to get a car working. Mm. Um, but that same property didn't seem to exist around the food. I guess he just didn't want to, uh, to be constantly writing about searching for mm. food, which they do anyway. Like they become accomplished hunters and, and they sort of get a hunter-gatherer thing going. Mm. Um, but he always does fall back that everyone's kind of got a tin opener in their pocket and there's just grocery stores everywhere that are full of enough food to live your literal entire oh. life. And again, another thing that the tropes have really spoiled me of with these things. Again, we saw, I don't know, maybe you guys were more well-behaved in Australia. When we had the pandemic happen here, people were immediately clearing out the supermarkets. And that yeah, yeah, was we, for... <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. We, we In Australia, we sort of got locked down pretty hard. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you'd be in trouble with the police if you're out and about and didn't have, didn't have one of a handful of good reasons. But absolutely, people immediately just gutted the uh the local supermarkets of toilet paper and pasta were like the two things that everybody <laughs> just bought um I've, I've it's now been a year and i've sort of had one of those facebook memory things where it's like here's a photo you took exactly a year ago today and it's of the supermarket sort of three blocks away from my apartment building and it's just cleaned out fresh wow. vegetables meat uh toilet paper and stuff so i kind of i kind of took from the book that th this mystery illness that happens in the book compared to coronavirus um seems to have been very quick mm. um and maybe this wasn't time for them to do that whereas uh, when the when the real world COVID sort of started up people were nervous it wasn't until the government locked people down said you couldn't go out that people for some reason bought toilet paper i don't i don't get mm. why that was the thing i still don't to this day but yeah i just guess in the book it was just too quick yeah, it's, uh, I can tell you, I was somebody who was going into all that of like, uh, this is dumb. This is crazy. Everybody's, you know, overreacting. But when I was in the supermarket itself and I saw that empty aisle, I immediately got that chill down my spine. Like, I need to go get as much toilet paper as I can. I, I didn't, but I felt the panic. Well, I, I got the panic where, um, and I, I kind of got the panic where I wasn't worried about the lockdowns of the virus. I was worried about everybody else buying all the stuff for dumb mm -hmm. reasons. And then yeah. I couldn't buy like the amount I needed. All right. <laughs> um, so the only other major character I have here who pops up, there'll be people who come in and out is uh, Joey. Joey is one of the youngest of the kids of uh, Ish and M. And he seems to be the only one that really has that intellectual spark that yeah. Ish has. And Ish is going to kind of like put all his hopes on him because the other kids, like they don't even want to learn. Ish is very much, he seems to be the one person in the community of like, we need to get civilization back up and going again. And we need to remember everything that happened before, where it seems like the next generation is already like, we're going to do things our way. But they try to humor him because they respect him and he's the leader. 
Yeah, he's got a lot of ideas about what he wants the future to look like. And in a lot of ways, it's the past. Um, mm-hmm. he, he talks a lot about these historical institutions and people not understanding them. And with only a few exceptions, he doesn't really get any truck with getting them to figure out how things work and how the world was. Um, I think one of the exceptions is bows and arrows. Like he sort of gets them interested in archery and pretty soon everybody's carving their own bows and arrows. And later in the book, it's a real thing. But he he idolizes his local university library and sees it almost as this sort of arc of human knowledge. He and treats it as a temple. Yeah. Um, There's the point where he gets even, he says in the book how mad he got when some of the kids busted in and just mucked around. Mm. Um, yeah. And it, it was a little bit, to me, it was almost a bit creepy. I'm like, I, I get that there's, those things are important. And in a, in a lot of places in the book, some of the people he meets um, have kind of mentally checked out. Like they've, they've become unwell. They don't care anymore. There's a couple he meets in Manhattan and they're basically just hanging out, getting drunk. Um, I think he sees this stuff as an antithesis to that, but he, it's really clear in the book that he thinks so much more of it that everybody else gets really frustrated at everybody else, the exception of Joey for not being into it as he is. Um, so, oh, and the only other character we mentioned before would be Evie. Uh, Evie is a simple girl that Ezra found living in squalor and took in. She grows into an attractive young woman, but the tribe has a rule that no one can marry her. One, because she's simple and just, that's not good. And two, her simple mindedness may be genetic and children would be a burden on the community. So, yeah. Yeah. It's another example of, um, ish being kind of a dick sometimes See, um, the only thing i would almost wonder if she is not as simple as he believes if not for the fact that it seems like the entire community kind of agrees yeah i think they're happy to leave well enough alone um i think there's sort of two reasons in a situation like this why, why you might do what they did and sort of no one can marry evie and one of them is uh, is she actually capable of understanding what's going on is she capable of consent so like is she mature mm-hmm. and, and you know there enough to do this mm-hmm. um but ish makes a big deal about how any kids she have might might carry the genetic condition like, mm-hmm. well that seems like less of a good idea yeah you're getting kind of into eugenics there and like intentionally yeah. like we don't want this in the gene pool yeah, yeah, and then looking back at the amount of kids that everybody like, there's a lot of kids born. There's, I think, one of the years they name is the year of lots of babies or something. Yeah, they're popping um, them out. Yeah, and I guess initially I thought, well, there's not a great deal else to do, so maybe maybe that's just what happens, right? Um, I, I guess there was no contraception in any of those stores that they're rating for tin goods. Mm. Um, but you do, yeah, you get that eugenics vibe when mm. uh, they draw a lot. Whether it's a some sort of uh, wanderer shows up with them and shows a, an interest in Evie and ah, they react so pretty nasty. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that right now. Yeah. But uh, first, um, so Ish notices that the youngsters are becoming more superstitious and they have come to regard his hammer as magical. That hammer he grabbed like just as he got bit that he still carries yeah. with him and it becomes this ceremonial, you know, they, they uh, not grind. What's the word? Whatever. He uses it to inscribe. Yeah, a carve or yeah, does he does it to chisel out the uh, chisel the, the years? Thank you, the, rock. the yep. tip of my tongue. Thank you. Um, but yeah, he uses it to chisel out the year on the rock every year. Um, but it almost becomes a totem and a symbol of his power as community leader, almost literally like Thor's hammer. It has no innate power, but it is the symbol of Ish's leadership. 
a symbol of the old times. And I also, we have the little detail here that uh, the young refer to the old times, their ancient godlike ancestors as Americans. Yeah, because that doesn't mean anything anymore in this circumstance. And it's a really interesting what if exercise around if you do remove everything that has meaning, what happens? Um, and he talks about this superstition where they, they seem to be building uh, a tradition of their own and he doesn't like it because he's the intellectual, as you say, and is very rational minded mm-hmm. and thinks that tries actively to discourage it, but everyone's pretty wary of this hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, else, elsewhere in the book, the sort of colony of survivors plays with the idea of religious service. Um, and they sort of get a pseudo church service up and running for a bit, but no one's into it that much. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, differences in, in any faith that they've held before anyway. So it's difficult to find common ground, including, I think he sets himself out as atheist and uh, one of the other adults thinks that's a variation of Christianity she hasn't heard of. <laughs> um, so this idea of what happens if you take away um, faith, tradition, um things that people believe rightly or wrongly what what happens and i guess it experiments with the idea that they come up with their own traditions one of them is that the hammer is is holy in some way it's a symbol of his authority and Mm -hmm. there's later later in the book towards the end he notices that there's sort of certain turns of phrase that people are using to mean something very specific that comes from the same place it's sort of a, Mm -hmm. a superstitious tradition right yeah i do uh Again, it, it surprises me that there wasn't more. You would think a book that came out in 1949 that very blatantly had like, yeah, they tried to get church going, but there was no real need for it anymore. You would think that would have been a bigger deal at the time, more controversial, if anything. Yeah, um, I guess America and Anglosphere countries more generally, I think um, in a situation like that, particularly at that time, there would have been some discomfort at the idea of not practicing faith in some way, but I actually could completely believe that um, it was a cultural thing, maybe more than necessarily a a genuinely held belief. And I could, I could understand that they might pay lip service to it for a bit because there are some things that those sort of traditions give you in terms of comfort and security Mm -hmm. and things like that. I don't know if they do very well post-apocalyptically. And I reckon they'd mm -hmm. probably fall by the wayside pretty quick. Yeah. Humans are very, with or without religion we are still we have a thing for ritual we have a thing for ceremony like that religion didn't create that impulse the impulse created religion it's going to find somewhere else to go yeah yeah and in the absence of that they don't keep on with the the alleged uh religious services but they do start to build up a a belief tradition Mm -hmm. starting with the hammer um yeah and it's it's funny to see where it comes from later in the book they they're forging arrowheads out of old coins. We're not mm. aware what the coins actually are, what they represent, but they know there's heaps of them. And they've got a superstition around uh, copper versus silver coins being better at, for different sorts of animals. Uh-huh. So they're, mm-hmm. they're building up that belief, that belief system in the absence of one. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. <laughs> So in part two, they decide to send out some of the older boys on a a cross-country trip to see what's happening with the world. So they send out two of the young boys, and we don't get to see what they do. We're just at home, and they're very nervous, and they're wondering when they're going to get back. And one day they return with a bunch of tails, but most importantly, they come back with Charlie. I'm going to say it right now. Fuck Charlie. I am not a fan of Charlie. 
Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I feel kind of the same, and I love the way the author's able to just have there be, be something off about him right mm-hmm. away. And I do um, love that we've seen it enough with Ish that it, it, we, Ish even questions himself a little bit, where he's like. I might be projecting onto this guy. He has a very immediate, like, I don't like this guy. But then again, he even wonders like, well, is part of that just because I'm the leader and this is a, a challenge or a threat? Maybe he's having this inner dialogue, like right away. He sees almost everything Charlie does as a challenge until Charlie does actually challenge him. Yeah. I, and had the author not done that with this, um, sort of questioning himself. I would have been questioning Ish myself as I read, right? So he's, he is judgy. Um, he's, he's got his flaws. So I'm like, is this guy trouble or are you just being judgy? And he's questioning himself about it. So like, yeah, maybe. But you, you start to get that feeling about this guy pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And so Charlie uh, is puts you offside real quick. Oh, yeah. And so thankfully for Ish, his confit her. He has somebody else who's believing the same thing, which is Ezra. Um, Ezra pretty much tells him like, oh yeah, Charlie had come to my house that night and he had some drinks and it seemed like he had some loose tongue and Charlie speaks very crassly and seems to have done some terrible things to do, to survive. He even flat out mentions that like he's pretty much had every sexually transmitted disease, which he calls Cupid's diseases, which I'd never heard of before. That's a very... yeah. I put that down to a, a 40s euphemism. Yeah, that's a, that's a cute name for gonorrhea. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, very, very uh, emblematic of the times to sort of talk around stuff like that with mm-hmm. uh, with cute euphemisms. Oh, there, there's a in in game shows in like the 70s on whenever they had to talk about sex. Because they would have like uh, the newlywed game and they'd be like, you know, where's the most interesting place you ever had sex? But it was TV, so you couldn't be that blunt. They'd say, where's the most interesting place you've ever made whoopee? Yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember my uh, my grandmother and her friends talking about somebody being a, a confirmed bachelor. Um, <laughs> I know what that means. Yeah, so it, it's that uh, stuff that was considered taboo or whatever, that's sort of talking around it. And that's the Cupid's <laughs> diseases. You know, it gives you a, a, a fuzzy feeling for all of 20 seconds before you realize he means chlamydia. Yeah, he's a, he's a confirmed bachelor. He just hasn't found the right girl yet. Yeah, 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 forever. <laughs> Him and his roommate, his roommate, yeah. Michael. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. It's, it's that sort of uh, beating around the bush. Okay, you know what? Hold on, I actually have a fun grandma story on that. Um, I have a, a cousin of mine who came out as a lesbian very young to most of the family, but not to my grandmother because we didn't know. And she had brought her girlfriend around all the time to all the family functions and never really explained it. Years later, she comes out to my grandmother and my grandmother said that Holly was your girlfriend. I thought she was just some moocher who kept showing up to all these family functions. I thought, why doesn't she have her own family? And just watching my 80 year old grandmother like, oh, I get it. Yeah, the, the other shoe dropped. I think my grandmother in the same situation I think, thought about it for all the 10, 15 seconds when she realized, it went, oh, I suppose things are different these days. And that was it. Um, they, were, they might have been different back, back then as well, but we used terms like making whoopee and confirmed bachelor to kind of cover it up a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Cupid's diseases, apparently. Yeah, Cupid's disease. I had a I I I had a wild weekend in Las Vegas, and I came back with some of Cupid's kisses. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> so Charlie 
so Ish is already coming to confront Charlie based on what he said. And one of the, uh, again, I thought this was going to be a bigger confrontation because we see a lot of the younger people really like Charlie. He finds them sitting around a bonfire and they're all listening to his stories. The only thing is Charlie is kind of getting a little sweet on Evie. Mm. And I honestly feel a little bad for Evie because it seems like she's responding very well to like the first person who doesn't realize, oh, I shouldn't touch her. Yeah, she's kind of been ignored or tolerated to various extents by everybody else all this time and someone showing showing us some attention, some affection, and she's kind of, she likes that. She may not understand what's going on, but but she kind of likes it. And that's Mm -hmm. when the bristles on the back of my neck started properly standing on end. Mm-hmm. which again i just had that for that brief second like oh is he gonna like you know is this gonna it, it, it seems something's gonna have to be done with charlie but then the question is like are any of the young people gonna go up against ish for this is mm-hmm. i honestly thought they were gonna send charlie away and then he was gonna come back with more people which yeah isn't yeah it's it's a weird one because it's the first really the first time in this book since the beginning when ish feels bad about taking another car um, and mm. sort of reconciling himself to the idea that that stuff doesn't have owners anymore and it's kind of open season. Mm. This is really the first time in the book that the question of authority has seriously become a problem, right? Everyone mm-hmm. up until now has kind of just done, done what Ish said when it sounded like a good idea and he's kind of the de facto boss or, or they didn't do what he said in situations where it didn't really matter anyway. Um, this is the first confrontation that actually needs to be resolved and the first situation where you would call the authorities mm-hmm. um, and there are none. So they have to deal with it. Right. Which always happens with authority. Literally any story where a hero has to emerge, there's always a time where he has to hand out discipline and it's always something rough. So basically he, Ish tells the kids to leave, tells Evie to leave and gives Charlie the basic like, listen, we don't do that with her. I think you need to be a little more careful. And Charlie basically says, yeah. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. He doubles down. He's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, you and his army. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's got a point, right? This, this has yeah. to be resolved old school. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. He goes back and it's pretty much, it seems uh, again, I'm, I'm operating on memory a little bit here, but if I believe, I believe it's just ish, the two men, and then M. I think it's said that like the older women don't really get involved in this stuff, but Emma's kind of like the strong one. And yeah. so they discuss what to do about this and they end up having an anonymous vote after hemming and hauling. And when it's an anonymous vote, all four of them say, we need to kill this guy. Yeah. Yeah, this is. And I was kind of expecting maybe one hangout at least, but um, right. they're all pretty unanimous. Mm-hmm. Um and looking at it, their options are limited, right? They talk about, well, what can you do in that situation? You send him away. Well, what's to say he doesn't come back? Right? Yeah. The guy's obviously a survivor. Um, he talks a lot about the stuff he's done once right? he's had a few drinks to, mm-hmm. to stay alive. And it, it looks like he'll do pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. And again, um, there is also the danger there in that the younger people seem to take kind of a shine to him after a very limited time. Yeah, he's he's kind of that bad uncle, right? That, that one uh, uncle at at, uh, at Christmas that has a few too many and sort of leans across the table and says, you know what your problem is. But the kids kind of think it's funny. He's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. sort of a, ba- a bad boy, which um, kids shy to. Mm-hmm. So they take him out and they, they hang him, right? Yeah. What, yeah. And 
we get some immediate consequences from that because it turns out they had good reason to fear Charlie. Something bad was going to happen either way. Charlie was carrying typhoid. It kills many in the community. Ish himself gets sick, which uh, this is actually just a great method of storytelling just because Ish is kind of like in and out of feverish hallucinations for a while. And then after what happens, we jump ahead and now he's an old man where he's pretty much living his life still in that mindset. Yeah, it's sort of the second time where he has a where he's sort of out of action for days and doesn't really know what's happening. And when he comes to sort of finds that it's killed a lot of a lot of the community, uh, a lot of the younger ones in particular, including his favorite son, Joey. Right. That's the that's the killer. And it's uh, as soon as he was putting all his hopes on Joey, it's like this kid is not making it. And, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's yeah. uh, you. You know that. You know that. Any if anybody in Act Two is like, I'm. We're all looking. We're all counting on you, son. Like that kid is getting a bullet in the eye any second now. Yeah, that is that is absolutely a red rag to a George R. R. Martin, right? It's the the mm. second that you you pin the hopes of civilization on someone, they're uh, they're thirty seconds from disaster at any given time. But he doesn't. As terrible about this is he doesn't even witness it he just comes to after this extended period like febrile period Mm -hmm. and finds out that joey's gone Mm -hmm. um so there's no saying goodbye there's just he succumbed while you were while you were ill Mm -hmm. so we have another section of the quick years and then bring us to the last chunk of this book part three the last american ish is the last of the originals uh we saw that I think M died a good like seven, eight years before him and was very much, you know, it it, it was sad. It was a big thing for the community because even though everybody had their own mothers, much like Ish was the leader, M had a very, there there wasn't anybody quite filling Ish's, I mean, uh, M's role as kind of like mother to the community. And like, she seemed to, again, a little bit of the times, I think if this was written today, they're probably more stronger female characters, but in this particular community, it's just M. Yeah. It's, and it's explicitly clear that sort of the gender roles of the the forties and fifties are are Mm -hmm. here, right? There's um, the women, except for M have nothing to do with the hanging. Um, you know, there's, there's very definitely women's work and men's work, but she was sort of the, the strong woman and is now gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Ezra is around for a little bit. Ezra and Ish are more or less, they're, they're in their twilight years. They hang around. They talk about the old times. They don't really do much until Ezra himself also dies. Uh, there's something in here. I think they say they join with another community and there's like a whole, yeah, it, yeah it's actually kind of a blip. They don't get into it too much, but it does... I'm glad he included it, even if we don't get a lot of the details. It's something that would happen at some point. Yeah, we we, we get uh we get a bit of a an inkling that there are other communities around. So when the boys go away, mm. they find um they find an East Coast community that appear to have really picked up the religion. Right, they're they're all wearing robes and they're very exclusionary. They chase the boys off. Um, and there's talk about some other communities existing in the South and things like that. So there are pockets of people that have found each other over the years, including mm-hmm. one just sort of across the body of water from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they join up with them. Mm-hmm. And, oh yeah, actually that's the process they're in. Cause they're already, they're starting to move things. Up. Well, I'm jumping a little bit. Uh, so now that Ish is the last American left, his ancestor, his, uh, 
his progeny revere him as kind of a living god. They've reverted yeah. to the ways of Native Americans where they're mostly wearing loincloths. Their language is already taking on like strange pronunciation. Pronunciation. I always mispronounce pronunciation. It's it's a it's a weird little uh, irony, huh? <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> mispronunciation. Mm. Um, oh, the one annoying little detail, but I kind of love is that these young ones will ask ish, ish questions because again, he's like the living god, but he's like a tired old man, so sometimes he doesn't want to answer. So they're simultaneously asking, like, you know, you are our wise god, and he's like, I don't want to talk, and they'll just like pinch him when he's not giving yeah. them information. Yeah, it's the weirdest little microaggression. Like, it just—it's the way you'd harass a cat if it won't move off the bed. Like, it—it's it, it the weirdest little detail. Yeah, I'd be more inclined to tickle a god. I think. Yeah, yeah, I would say pat his face or poke him or something. <laughs> the, the, the pinch seems to be weird. Yeah, <laughs> these these guys, these uh, growing children, as growing into men who are described as sort of they still wear some of the clothes that they can find around so jeans or whatever but on top they're like um yeah they're getting sort of a bit of animism going where they're wearing animal presumably the the toughest one that they've personally killed so you just go with a mountain lion uh cape <laughs> and blue jeans pinching and, this guy because he, he won't give them advice <laughs> and at, at this point they've also moved to mostly bow and arrow just because they've gotten to the point now where Bullets are limited. Not all of them work because, you know, they've just kind of degraded yeah. over time. Yeah, um, they see them as being, uh, as uh, one of the, the kids explicitly, or the, the children, they're not children, they're grown, but the progeny right. um, sort of laughs at his suggestion that they should learn to shoot because as everybody knows, right, rifles work one time in five. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, those weird ones where he doesn't get a pass about the tin food because the author will concede that you know car rubber on tires will degrade. Uh, but the the other thing I left shells will. The other thing I left out, uh, gasoline degrades in like if gasoline in ten years does not work anymore. It splits into its different components. Yet there's yeah. always like we get further on, and they're like, oh, we don't really do that anymore. But it lasts way longer than it should have. Yeah. The- he's finding petrol just sort of lying around pretty much everywhere. And eventually they get to sort of dog sleds Mm -hmm. um, as their way of getting around, which, which makes a certain amount of sense. But yeah, it was um, as his understanding of American geography uh, much surpasses his understanding of petrochemical science. Mm -hmm. So uh, the climax of the book ish wakes up to his house burning down Again, this is also mentioned as the ecology, which is just as the years have gone with like nobody to put out these fires, they just rage. Mm. Um, the younger people bur- burst into the house and take him out and some of his things. May- they make sure to grab the hammer. They travel yes. with Ish, these three progeny of his, of the community. As they are crossing a bridge, he starts fading out. Ish is dying. His three descendants put him down on the other side of the bridge and they look at him expectedly, expecting him to appoint a new leader before dying. When Ish doesn't get this right away, they, of course, begin pinching him because. <laughs> Is that the way you get a, get a solution? Yeah. Just pinch the oracle until you get an answer. Please leave a dying man unpinched. Uh, he, ha- he hands the hammer to his great grandson, Jack, making him the new leader and Ish dies. And that's the end of the story. I love it yeah, it's, so much. It's I 
I still had stuff. Like I'm really glad of this opportunity to talk about. It, so there's so many questions. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes sense that he dies there. Um, you know, it, it, it's a fitting conclusion to the story. But there's so much stuff that the author casually plays with and then puts back. Like he notes that the language is starting to change, that their pronunciation of words is starting to sound foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the word it, he he uses exactly is somebody says C over there, but they pr- pronounce it as like ski, like ski or there. And just yeah. like the tiny little smidges of the language evolving. Yeah. So we get this glimpse of, of language starting to evolve. Um, and they've obviously selected uh, a hereditary method of transferring leaders, but it's not really talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of want to play with this world more. Um, I want oh, w- to the language. Absolutely leaves you wanting more on this. Again, he could have written... So he could have written another book that takes right up from great grandson, Jack, and it would have been amazing. Yeah. But left it as yeah, it was. I, I almost want to see the, I want to read the other books. I want to, I'm left wanting more, but mm-hmm. I assume the author, wherever they are, is cackling at the idea, just sort of dropped <laughs> it. And then he died. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a, bit, a bit the way you sort of finished off your creative writing stories in third grade, right? Mm-hmm. And then everyone died at the end. The end. All right. So real quick, you get to rebuild society. You can be as petty and particular as you like. What do you remove from existing society and what do you add to it? I, so what I'm going to remove, a lot of the things that Ish is, is concerned about in the book, I think they're better off without. So some of the power mm-hmm. structures and things mm-hmm. like that. Now, there's obviously... There's obviously some use for authority and force, um, but in the US as well as Australia, right, there's ongoing conversations about who benefits from that and why. Right. Um, so faced with the idea of, of a, a whole new world, I don't think we need as many bosses and leaders as what we've got. Um, so the idea of starting afresh and being open-minded to the way things can go. So Ish is like, oh, we need to, there's almost this hagiography of, of we need art and, and music and it, uh, reading he, he talks a lot when uh the first time when m has a child he's first first idea is to run to the to the library and read books about gynecology and obstetrics um i think knowledge is great but some of the power structures around it aren't um and i reckon we could leave them behind if we if that happened what i what i'd like to take forward is um i i'm a big foodie i love to cook i love to eat um i do a lot of reading about about food and and traditional diets and things like that. Um, it takes them a long time in the book to sort of start playing around with gardening um, and start playing around with agriculture. And they start to try and grow stuff that isn't ideal. Like they, they go straight to corn, which doesn't grow particularly well where they are. Um, so given a blank slate society, I'd like to play around with how, how you produce food. Um, I think agriculture could be done better um, rather yeah. than just rotating corn and soy. Hmm. yeah those are the things that i'd be pushing for okay i actually i didn't have anything clever at all about that when i was thinking like what would i what would i remove from society i just thought like you know shirts let's let's just go shirtless we don't need this (laughs) put a little sunblock on you're fine uh, where i live um so sydney's climate it's it's really hot during the summer it gets to 100 degrees quite easy Mm. Um, and it's, it could be very, very humid. I'm like thinking about it. If we could just start again with no, no norms, mm-hmm. I don't see why guys can't wear skirts. Jordy, 
Yes. So the <laughs> brief, brief story here. Years ago, you remember the show Lost? Yeah. 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 yeah obviously dealt with Australia quite a bit. Um, the show Lost, we were at my friend's house for a season premiere. They had a new little puppy, but we were having like people over to watch this. And I'm playing with his adorable little puppy and he urinates all over my pants. We have people coming wow. over. I don't have time to go home. My friend's girlfriend throws me a skirt. I have never been more comfortable in my life than a right. long black skirt, just comfy, getting breeze. <laughs> yeah. So Im- imagine living uh, somewhere like Sydney. It's it's 98 degrees and 80% humidity for like three days straight. Um, I, I, skirts. Skirts. I would wear less, less mountain lions than what they wear in the book, um, but I would look <laughs> at that. Okay, there we go. Our, our plot, Jordy and Jesse's plot for the future. Pants are gone. Skirts are in. Uh, so I have some random little things here to wrap up. Uh, Jimi Hendrix called Earth Abides his favorite book. I did not know that. There you go. Uh, some quotes, obviously the end, straight from the Bible. Men come and go, but Earth abides. Uh, the trouble you're expecting never happens. It's always something that sneaks up the other way. Ain't that the truth? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a strange thing, he thought, to be an old god. They worship you, and yet they mistreat you. If they do not, if they do not want to do what they wish, they make you. It is not fair. And then I added at the end, they also pinch you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Come on, do the god thing. Do the god thing. Be be a god. Be a god. <laughs> uh, um. Yeah, I love the thing at the end. This is my own personal thoughts about death because I think about it a lot as a... I refer to myself as a begrudging atheist. Like, I want there to be something. I just don't really think so. And that bums me out. Um, I've had the thought that, like, younger members of my family will be my pallbearers one day to carry the coffin. But then even when I think about that, you remember how long life can be. And realistically, if I live to an old age, these babies I'm picturing, like I think like oh, my nephew, you'll carry to my grave one day. Like if I live to 80, he'll be 50 something. He will be beyond that. So just the notion of thinking like the people, the people who will be my pallbearers aren't even on the earth yet. Like, yeah, that just makes me stop and thinking. And I remember uh, a funeral I went to a few years ago. I never thought this was like my great uncle. And somebody had brought like their six month old baby to this funeral, which, you know, God bless shitty, <laughs> unreliable babysitters everywhere. Cause I found that to be like the most beautiful thing. I, I have said since like every funeral should have a baby there because it is like a perfect humanity. Like here Gives we come. Perspective, hey. Yep. There we go. And here we come. And it's just, mm. Yeah, it's it's the the rolling forward of, of humanity. Yeah, just those tiny little things. Well, Jordy, that's all I got, man. We this was good. I uh, I I knew it, but I needed to actually feel. I wanted to talk about this book with somebody so <laughs> much. Uh, it, it it same. So thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, man. Well, I'm, I'm glad if I talked to somebody, I'm glad it was you. This was really good. This is I I love podcasting for this. There is almost no circumstance in the world that you and I would have probably met, even if I wandered my way over, <laughs> maybe, Hey, maybe I'll rise up in this company and I'll end up taking over the Sydney offices. And maybe then we would have run into each other. But well, if that ever happens, I'll buy you a beer. 
hell yes, because I am cheap and I don't tip. <laughs> guys, no, we don't tip in this. We don't tip in this country, so it'll be a cheap fee. Oh god. Okay, never mind. I take it back. Skirts are in. Tipping is out. We need to fix that here. It's too yeah. much. <laughs> All right. Jordy, I'm going to end this the way every end every episode. I am going to stop recording, but you and I can keep chatting for a second. Say goodbye to all the nice people out there in podcast land. <laughs> um, bye-bye, nice people in podcast land. <laughs>